Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. In the opening lines of his letter, we're able to clearly see the love and affection Paul has for the Philippian church. Every time that they come to his mind, he thanks God in joyful prayer for their past and present faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In regards to their future, he offers up prayer to God that they would be a church that doesn't plateau, but rather that they would have a love that would abound still more and more. His every remembrance of them fills his heart with joy, and he wants to share with them where his source of joy comes from and ensure to them that no matter how grim the circumstances may get, not to lose heart. And this brings us to our text this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21 read, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And from this text, we're given a glimpse of how God's plans often work counterintuitive to what we would imagine. As Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we can clearly see this truth being put on display here this morning. The early church is growing. It's reaching new people groups and places. Its numbers are increasing, and there is momentum behind it. And this idea of momentum is one that we understand well today. Whether it's a sports team, business, politician, or an organization— We all understand that's a good thing when they have momentum on their side. It's exciting for the partakers and the spectators alike. But what happens when all that momentum screeches to a halt? Normally, those that are involved are left to pick up the pieces and regain their footing. And those on the sidelines write the whole thing off as a loss. Well, that was fun to watch, but show's over. Let's go home. And as we consider the circumstances of the Apostle Paul and the early church, 
this is what we would expect to hear from verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out to be a detrimental blow for the progress of the gospel. That's what we would expect to hear. We'd expect to hear Paul's, that Paul's converts are hiding out in their homes for safety. Paul himself being deprived of all hope and all momentum gone. But thankfully, God's plans are not bound by the same rules or strategies that guide the plans of men. That's what we would expect to see. But instead, in verse 12, we read, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What was that? There must have been some kind of typo here because that can't be right. Paul's the guy that's supposed to be out there sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. There's no way that the gospel can be advancing while he's locked up in prison. That doesn't make any sense. And while this may not make any sense to us, and we would certainly never include it in our plans, thankfully, there's nothing that can frustrate the plans of God. And this is what's being put on display here in verses 12 through 21. We see the gospel being advanced in ways that we would never imagine. Paul is assuring the members of the Philippian church that his current circumstances, being imprisoned in the cause of Christ, have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Take another look at verses 12 through 13. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And rather than wallowing in self-pity because Paul once again finds himself in prison, Paul uses his time to continue sharing the gospel of Christ. And in a way that only God can, doors are opened up to share the gospel with a whole new people group that would have otherwise been completely inaccessible, the Roman military. As one commentator put it, those guarding Paul have become their captives, captive audience. And as we see in verse 13, it became well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, not only that Paul's imprisonment was in the service of Christ, but even more so, they heard of his relationship with Christ. He's locked up in jail because he was proclaiming the gospel. And now that he's in jail, he just keeps on proclaiming the gospel. He shares the gospel with the guards that were with him and everyone else that he came in contact with. You see, Paul wasn't only on the mission when he was on the mission field, whatever that actually means. The world was his mission field. When he looked to his side and saw the Roman soldier that his chains were fastened to, he saw more than just flesh and blood. He viewed people as they are, yes, seeing them physically, but beyond that, he believed what God said about humanity. As we were reminded in Zechariah 12:2, it is the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Paul believed this when he saw those around him, and this is how he viewed them. As image bearers of God, image bearers that were given a soul which will continue on for all eternity. All eternity. Additionally, Paul also trusted what God said regarding the natural state of man. When Paul wrote to the Roman church, he laid this point out very clearly in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, where he quotes from several of the psalmists. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You see, Paul knew that the Roman guards who he was rubbing shoulders with every day during his imprisonment had a lot more to them than met the eye. So he shared with them the only thing that ultimately matters, the gospel. So, what about us, church? When we find ourselves as a group or individually in a place we would rather not be in, what's our first reaction? Do we grumble and complain about how the situation is unfair, uncomfortable, or ill-timed? Or are we able to recognize that God might just have us there for a purpose? When we look across the street and see our neighbors, across the table, see our family, across the office and see our coworkers, are we just seeing a face and a name? As C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And it's about time, church, that we see people as they truly are, and that we seize on to every opportunity God might give us to advance his gospel. And as we continue on this, in this morning's text, we're able to see that God is able to use Paul's imprisonment in more than one way to advance the gospel. Take another look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. Philippians 1, 14 reads, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Or perhaps a more helpful rendering of verse 14 would be from the NIV, which says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's imprisonment was able to advance the gospel on two different fronts. The first was being able to share with those who had not previously heard of Christ. But now we also see the gospel being advanced through Paul's imprisonment to those who are already in Christ. Once again, we see something that we would deem as not normal. Paul is locked up because he was sharing the gospel. Other believers would have known that, so we assume that out of self-preservation, they would grow more fearful, more timid, more silent. But once again, the opposite is true. Most of the believers that have heard of Paul's imprisonment aren't shrinking back in fear, but have gained confidence and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. But what is it that has caused the other believers to have this influx of courage in regards to proclaiming the gospel? It's the same source that Paul has tapped into finding strength and joy even while he's in prison. It's found in Christ. Matthew Henry says it well. They, most of the brothers and sisters, saw that those who served Christ served a good master who could both bear them up and bear them out and their sufferings for him. And this is the effect that is put on display for us in verse 14 of our text. Because of Paul's imprisonment, believers in Christ are more confident in the Lord and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Their confidence and courage have not increased in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but rather they have increased 
in light of Paul's imprisonment. God used Paul's incarceration as an opportunity to prove to Paul and the other believers that no matter the situation, he is with them. As David wrote in Psalms 139, 7-18, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay a hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Friends, we can be confident that if we're faithfully pursuing after Christ and find ourselves in a difficult situation, we need to stop acting as if God is unaware of what is happening and realize that we are exactly where he wants us to be. He hasn't become preoccupied with some other event and completely forgotten about you. He has placed you there for a reason. And maybe... This reason is to help you gain confidence and courage in the Lord. Perhaps you are there in order to be an example to other brothers and sisters in Christ of what it looks like to suffer joyfully under persecution. Or, most likely, you're there to serve both of these purposes. And whatever the case may be, you don't need to fear because if you're walking with Christ, then you're never walking alone. No matter where the path of life may lead you, he is right there, by your side. And because we know this to be true, it should build our confidence in the Lord and make us all the more daring to proclaim the gospel without fear. And as we've already seen this morning, God can use whatever means he chooses to advance his gospel. Paul's imprisonment turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And as we continue to move through our text, we're able to see that God is able to use even the sordid motivations of man to proclaim the name of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 15 through 18 read. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul was sidelined from being able to proclaim Christ in the community, and in his absence, others stepped up to the plate. Verses 15 through 18 divide those who are preaching Christ during Paul's leave into two separate groups. The first group proclaims Christ in pretense, or, to put it more simply, their preaching was a pretext 
to cover other less worthy purposes. They preach Christ from envy and strife, and they do it out of selfish ambition, thinking that they might cause Paul stress in his imprisonment. And the second group that we see in our text proclaims Christ from true and pure motives. They are preaching from goodwill, and they do it out of love, knowing that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the latter group is obviously the one that is more notable. They understand that Paul isn't in prison because of some sin that he committed in offense to Rome, but because he was proclaiming Christ. Furthermore, they recognize that Paul's imprisonment and the ministry that he has are not his by chance, but they were appointed to him by God's sovereign will. They identified that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel, and in his absence, they preached Christ from true motives, goodwill, and out of love. And understandably, the, the apostle praises them and God because Christ is being proclaimed. Because Christ is being proclaimed, and it causes him to rejoice. The second group and Paul's reaction to them is one that will most likely cause the readers of Philippians to be caught by surprise. They too are proclaiming Christ, but their motives were not pure. As the writers of the Reformed Expository Commentary put it, since Paul seems to be sidelined by his legal troubles, in their envy and rivalry, they swoop into the vacuum and strive to rack up a convert count that will put Paul's to shame. Surely they imagine their success will make Paul's chains feel even heavier. And the second group, their preaching of, sorry, the first group, their preaching of Christ was undoubtedly done without any care or concern for the apostle. It was most likely done with a total disregard for the audience to whom they were preaching. And it was undeniably done in order to seek their own self-interest. And as we contemplate for what reason this nameless group some 2,000 years ago would do such a thing, the most obvious question is that of why. Why would they preach Christ for their own self-interest? Why would God allow them to preach his name in pretense? And before we fill ourselves with sinful outrage, let's make sure that we examine the facts, and more importantly, that we understand the bigger principle that's being put on display right here in our text. First of all, we need to note that even though their motives were not pure, their preaching of Christ did remain true to the gospel message. This is made evident from what we can see in the text and also from what we do not see. In verse 15, we see that Paul states they are preaching Christ. In verse 17, he says that they proclaim Christ. And in verse 18, he declares that even if Christ's name is being proclaimed in pretense, that he will still rejoice. And from just verses 15 and 17, we may be left scratching our heads, wondering whether or not their message remained true to the gospel. But Paul's reaction in verse 18 leaves us without any doubt. We can be certain that if their gospel message had been distorted in any way, that Paul would not have rejoiced over the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. We can be certain of this because sharing any version of the, of the gospel other than the true biblical one is the same as not sharing the gospel at all. If it gets twisted, distorted, or watered down, it's no longer the gospel. We can have confidence that their message was accurate because we were able to see the Apostle Paul rejoicing that Christ was proclaimed. 
And we can also be certain of this because we do not see Paul rebuking them as he would in other places of Scripture. Just two chapters over in Philippians chapter 3, uh, we see in verses 2 and 3, Paul saying this, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcisions, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And there he's warning the Philippians about potential Judaizers coming in and distorting the gospel. And Paul puts this point even more clearly in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And we can rest assured from the text and other places in Scripture that though their motives were impure, their proclamation of the gospel did remain pure. As the writers of the expository Bible commentary express, they were not unbelievers or perverters of Christian truth. They were self-seeking opportunists promoting themselves at Paul's expense. And we can be certain of this. And additionally, we can also be certain that these individuals who lived some 2,000 years ago and anyone who has ever lived will be held accountable for their actions and also the intentions of their heart. And before we overstep and try to sit in God's place of judgment, let's make sure that we don't miss out on the marvelous truth that is shining forth right here in our text this morning. And that truth is, we serve a God who is somehow able to use men's envy, strife, selfish ambitions, impure motives, and pretense to bring about his plans and accomplish his purposes. And this same truth is one that Joseph proclaims in the book of Genesis. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. The selfish, the selfish motives and sinful actions of Joseph's brother led him, to being, led him to being tossed in a pit, sold into slavery in a foreign land, thrown in prison even though he was innocent, and eventually he was raised to Pharaoh's right-hand man. And from this position, Joseph was able to stockpile grain during the plentiful years to store up during the years of famine. God used him in this capacity to preserve many people alive. And the same God that was able to use the jealousy of Joseph's brothers to accomplish his plans is also able to advance his gospel, whether it be proclaimed in pretense or in truth. And what an amazing thing that is. Just think of how many people over the course of history have sat under the preaching of the word, which is done accurately, but for the wrong intentions. And then marvel over the fact that God was able to somehow use the selfish ambitions of man to draw those who were lost to himself. How many souls are now residing in the internal presence of the God of the universe, even though the gospel was declared from pretense? How many alive today have this as their story? We serve an amazing God, 
a God who can have who can have the proclamation of his name go out, whether it be by pretense or by truth. And as we've seen thus far, God can accomplish his plans in ways that we would definitely define as unconventional. His gospel can be advanced through imprisonment, through an accurate presentation of his word done under pretense or truth, and through the life or death of his faithful followers. Let's take another look at verses 18b through 21 of this morning's text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In verse 19, Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Or from the Greek, I know that this will turn out for my soteria. My deliverance, my preservation, my safety, my salvation. So, what is it that Paul is hoping to be delivered or saved from? Prison chains or earthly chains? Some will argue that this text is only talking about deliverance from the chains of imprisonment. Others will argue that it's only talking about salvation from a spiritual sense, namely the salvation from sin's condemnation, God's wrath, and eternal death. And I will argue that it was purposely written to go either way. As we look at this letter written to his friends in Philippi, you can envision the inward thoughts of Paul through the words that he penned some 2,000 years ago. Maybe God will deliver me from imprisonment and execution, and I will go on living. Maybe I'll be put to death and saved from this sinful world, saved from this body of sin, and I will finally come face to face with my Savior. But you know what? Either way, I don't care. I don't care because my only desire can be accomplished in my living or my dying. All I want to do is not be ashamed. All I want to do is exalt Christ, whether that be by life or by death. You see, ever since Christ saved my soul, that's all that I've ever wanted to do. And now that I'm face to face with this level of persecution, now that death might be right around the corner, my hope and my expectations are that I won't be ashamed and that God will give me the courage that I need. So I ask you, brothers and sisters in Philippi, please pray for me. Pray that God would give me the courage. Pray that God would send his spirit to help me. I don't want to be ashamed. I want to be bold and courageous. I don't want to cower in fear. What I want right now, even in this difficult situation, is what I have always wanted. I want Christ to be exalted in my body. I want Christ to be exalted in my actions, my words, my thoughts, my motivations in my whole life. That's all I want because that's the only thing that I can give in response to what he's already given to me. That's the only thing that makes sense, Lord. So I give this life to you. May you be exalted in me, whether by life or by death. Lord, all I want to do is advance your gospel. So use me however you wish. This is, this is the cry of Paul's heart. And this is what our aim is to be as well. 
Paul opens this letter by describing himself and Timothy as bond servants of Christ Jesus. Servants that are willing and eager to do their master's bidding, whatever that may be, and wherever it may take them. And friends, when we arrive at this place, there's no better place to be. We can rest fully in Christ because we are clinging so tightly to him. And we are most useful to God because we have fully surrendered our will over to his. In the words of one theologian, when we arrive at that juncture of our spiritual pilgrimage, we will then be able to live with joyful, self-giving abandon, welcoming every bit of life, and without fear of death. And you can hear Paul's thoughts echoing off the page, but are these same thoughts echoing through your mind? Is it your chief desire to exalt Christ in your life, or are you too busy for that right now? Eh, I'll get to that later when I'm not at work. I'll get to it when I'm at church on Sunday, when my kids are out of the house and I have more time, when I can finally relax a little after that promotion I've been working for, when I find the perfect companion and I start my life with them. When I get to the next stage in life, don't worry, God. I'll get to it as soon as I have some time. Don't let this be you, friends. (laughs) Don't let this be you. Don't be right next door to God's kingdom and miss out on it. Don't become so busy with things that don't matter that you forego all the blessings that come from faithfully serving Christ. Stop chasing after temporal things that can never satisfy and start following the only one who can satisfy. Surrender everything over to God and allow him to use you as his hands and feet in this world. Allow him to send you out to engage in the greatest work one can ever be a part of, the advancement of his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that, uh, we thank you for your control um, and that you're a God that can just use all sorts of things that we would, we've never, we would never choose and we can't fully understand, but you can still use them to advance your kingdom, Lord. We thank you for that. Uh, and we just ask that you would work in all of our hearts and that we would trust you and just have the confidence to proclaim your name boldly and that we would just get on board with what you're already doing, Lord. You're advancing your kingdom and we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that work and just uh, come alongside you and enjoy the greatest blessing that we could be given uh, to be working right alongside you, Lord. We thank you for your word and just for everything you do, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.